Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to John chapter 7 and chapter 8. Trying to get my pen to work here. Hold on a second. They don't want to do it. Oh, well. We'll skip the pen. I won't be writing today. John chapter 8. We're going to read a couple of verses in the text, and then we're going to look to the Lord in a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll jump into the passage today. I want to start reading in John chapter 7 and verse 53. This is a well-known story in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's poignant, it's touching, probably one of the most touching stories in the life of Jesus and in his ministry. We're going to take two weeks looking at some things about it. Today we're going to look in the context, going back into chapter 7, and address some things. But I want to read this text to just begin to think about what goes on. Maybe you've never heard the story. Maybe you're new to the Word. Maybe you've never read the Gospel of John. It's a powerful story. They each went to their own house. But Jesus, who of course had no house, went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman who had been caught in adultery and they placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. They left out, and the man. So what do you say? This they were saying, not because they really wanted to know, but they were saying it to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Notice that, that's an important phrase in what we're looking at today. Jesus almost seems to disregard. He bends down, and he scribbles in the sand. He writes with his finger on the ground. They continue to badger him. They continue to ask him. Finally, he stands up and he says to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, 
beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in front of him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, leave your life of sin. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, as we consider this text today, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would draw us into a sense of an understanding of why you did what you did, how you did what you did, and why this is important for us. As we lay some groundwork to really study the story itself, I pray that you'd bless our understanding, that you would open our eyes. Lord, I ask that you would give me clarity of mind. Lord, you know I'm tired today. It was a busy weekend with the kids, and it was fun. I'm tired, and I just pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would give me insight and energy, words to say, words to explain. Help me, Lord, to not befuddle anything or anyone on this very important subject, but that your Holy Spirit may work. So I pray in Jesus' name, amen. title of my sermon today is A Moose in the Yard. No, there isn't one there. Say, that is a weird title for a passage on a woman taken in adultery. What does a moose in the yard have to do with that? Well, here's what it has to do. One of the joys of preaching in Wyoming is a lot of things happen unexpectedly, right? I can remember several Sundays. I remember one Sunday, it's been a few years ago, all of a sudden a bull moose, you know, began wandering out here and eating in the grass and I remember once, this is years ago, a long, long time ago, when we were in the other building down the highway um, back in the city of Thane, right in the city limits of Thane, and on a Sunday morning as I was preaching once, I started noticing, that's the way it always works, you know, I'm preaching away, and all of a sudden I noticed people starting to go like this and look out the window, <laughs> you know, and then I look out there, and that Sunday there was two bull moose, and they were nice bulls, and they were just out in the yard grazing away, and you know, there they were, and I remember when it happened here, you know, it was just like that. I was preaching, I don't remember what I was preaching on, and as I was preaching, I remember somebody sitting over here, I could just see them looking out there, and then they were kind of leaning forward, and I'm like, you know, well, that's not me, you know, it's not that I got my cereal on my nose, because they're looking out there, nevertheless, I'm beginning to wonder what's going on out there, and so for long, and then, oh, it's a moose in the yard, right? Well, when that happens... Things happen like that in church, right? You know, somebody all of a sudden, you know, has the flu and pukes in the, in the, in the, in the aisle and has got to make their way out. You know, what do you do with that? You know, those kind of things happen when you're a family and you're in church. Kids cry. Oh, whatever, you know. Things come your way. What do you do with it? Well, you can ignore it, right? You can ignore it. I could be preaching and... 
There's a moose in the yard, and everybody's looking out there, and I can be in my mind and in my own world thinking, you know, if you were all spiritual like me, you wouldn't be looking out the window, right? You'd be listening. Uh, you know, I, I could be annoyed at it, or whatever the case might be, or I can acknowledge it and enjoy it with you, have a minute, and then we go on, right? That's the way it happens. Something funny happens in our midst, we take a break and we laugh, we maybe make a joke, and then we go on. That's the way it goes. Now, when it comes to something in the text that's like a moose in the yard, a pastor has two choices. He can just skip over it, pretend it's not there, and disregard it. And everybody out there is looking in their study notes and is thinking something else. And I can tell everybody's thinking about something else, but I'm just like, well, if you were all spiritual, you'd be listening to what I'd be saying. Or I can acknowledge it, and we can deal with it. So today we're going to acknowledge the moose in the yard. And you say, okay, what is the moose in the yard? The moose in the yard is this. If you noticed in your Bible, probably most of you when you noticed and you began to read this, when you began to read in verse 53, before that verse, there's a bracket. And then at the end of verse 12, there's a bracket. And so as I was reading, you were looking at the moose in the yard. And you were, what's that bracket there for? I haven't seen one of them in my Bible before. And so then you were looking down in your study notes, and you were seeing what John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or C.I. Schofield or somebody else had to say about the bracket there. And you missed the text. You weren't spiritual like me. <laughs> right? No, I'm just joking. You know, no, I, I looked at the moose in the yard all this week. So there's a bracket there. What does that mean? Now, if you remember earlier in our study in the Gospel of John, when we were in chapter 5, we talked about another bracket. And that was about the woman, or excuse me, the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. And the angel that came down and scurried up the water, and the first one in the water was the one who was healed. And we looked at the manuscript evidence for a disputed passage in John's Gospel in chapter 5. This passage in chapter 8, 8, 1 through 12, is another passage in the Scripture that has some dispute as to whether or not it was in the original as John wrote it. That's why those brackets are there, okay? That's the moose in the yard. And I want to acknowledge that, and I want to think about it today. It's interesting. I did a lot of reading on this this week. I read a lot of things from other people. Uh, there are some people who look at this text and think it does not belong in the Scripture, and because it does not belong in the Scripture... When I get to it, I should skip it and should not preach it. And so there are many men who don't preach it. There are some men who preach it, and they put a disclaimer on it. There are some men who don't acknowledge the moose in the yard. 
and just pretend it's not there. So we need to look at it today, and I want to do it and then make an application. I also want to do this in a way that, as I hope we did in John chapter 5, increases our faith in the trustworthiness of Scripture. That is important. A lot of times people don't acknowledge the moose in the yard because they are afraid that if they do, people in the pew will hear that sermon and they'll be like, well, I can't trust the Bible. And if that happens, I failed miserably. But if I don't acknowledge it, and we don't have a real answer for it, then some of you are still going to not trust the Bible because you're going to look at it and you say, Pastor Tim skipped it, and he must have skipped it because he was afraid to deal with it. So we're going to deal with it. So let's go into it, and I'm going to just give you some explanation on a couple of things as to what I believe we should do with this passage. Obviously, I read it this morning, so that gives you a hint that we are going to preach on it next week. Okay, so let's look at some things. And it's going to be, some of this stuff's going to be a little bit technical, and I don't want to miss you on it. And because I'm tired, I sure hope I don't screw it up. So let's go into it. What do we make of this text? Now, these are just some questions. A lot of people ask these questions of this text. And I'm going to try to answer a few of them, but I'm going to couch them in, and we're not going to go into the explanation of all the various manuscripts. Were you here to listen to David Sadaka two weeks ago? If you were, he talked a lot about manuscripts, what they are, where they come from, um, how we classify them, things we understand about them. And I've done that on other occasions, and I'm not going to go back into manuscripts today. Um, but nevertheless, there's some dispute. People are saying, you know, was this written by John? It's in John's Gospel, but was it written by him? Was it written by another early disciple? and then later inserted into John's Gospel? And then that brings up the question, is it canonical? Now, you may be sitting out there and you're saying, what in the world is the word canonical? The word canon refers to, it comes from a Latin word, which means a ruler, a ruler. A ruler is used to measure. It is a standard of measurement. When we are talking about tests of canonicity, we are talking about the ruler that the church used in ancient times to look at various books that were written by the apostles to know which ones were written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. The ones who passed that test by the universal church in the ancient world, were regarded as a part of the canon of Scripture. Okay, that's what that concept is. So when you hear canonicity and canon, you know, don't think about a 155-millimeter howitzer. You know, we're not talking about that kind of canon. We're talking about tests of canonicity as it relates to the various books of the Bible. Pop culture... In the last few decades, uh, there's been a lot of things that have been purported about the early church and canonicity. 
through books like the Da Vinci Code and movies like that. And there's been a, kind of a lot of false claims that have been thrown out there about some of the you know, kind of spurious books that were written uh, and purported to be scripture by certain people, like the Gospel of Thomas and other things. Um, and so we're talking about, you know, there was a lot of books written about Jesus in the ancient world. The church sifted through them, recognized those that had the marks of inspiration. And then the question comes up, people, you know, look at this, should it be preached? Um, and so there is kind of a technical debate here, much like in John 5. Because it is technical, some of it goes way over my head. Because it's technical, some of it may go over some of your heads. Nevertheless, I hope you get the key points. Because it is in the key points that if somebody comes to you and you've got to have a conversation on this issue, you can at least be intelligent on it, right? You can at least be intelligent and you have some information. Here's where we go. Here's the evidence we have. Man, I wish I could get my pen to work. I feel like I'm handicapped without it. Let me just see if it'll... It ain't going to do it. I don't know why I don't want to recognize it. Okay, here's the evidence. So we'll start with this first... Ah, see? Sorry. The first point. And I'll keep my finger off my screen. And, and this is the one that you'll notice probably is in your Bible's footnotes especially if you have a study Bible. It will say something like this. You know, and actually, to be technically proper, it should be verse 53 of chapter 7 through verse 12 of chapter 8. Does not appear in many early manuscripts in our possession. That phrase there, and I would circle that if I had my pen working, in our possession. Why? Because we don't have every early manuscript, right? We do not have them. We don't have the original autograph. We do have ones that the Holy Spirit preserved. In many of the earliest manuscripts, those verses are not there. It also appears in some early manuscripts I think in five different locations. Four of them are in chapter 7, interspersed in what we've been studying, and one time it appears in Luke's Gospel in an early manuscript. Okay? That's kind of the evidence of what we have in manuscript evidence that the church possesses. My third point is important, because this is how it got into the New Testament as you carry it, okay, in one sense. Now, I'm going to say it also got there because the Holy Spirit put it there, wanted it there. But here's the process. In 382, a guy named Jerome, who was a linguist and a scholar, was commissioned by the Catholic Church to take all of the various manuscripts 
to form them into one and to produce an authorized Latin translation for the churches of that day. It's called the Vulgate. The Vulgate. Have you ever heard of it? The Latin Vulgate. Now, why is it called that? The word Vulgate comes from a Latin idea or concept, a word vulgar. Now, if I got up in front of you and I was speaking vulgar, you would say I was speaking what? Dirty, right? You know, we say something's vulgar in our vernacular, we're thinking dirty talk. But the Latin concept has nothing to do with dirty talk or being filthy in your speech. The word vulgar in the Latin refers to common. So when we say vulgar, when he called it the Vulgate, what it meant was this. He was taking Greek that was written in the first century. He's translating it into Latin, which is the vulgar tongue, which means it's this. It's the tongue, it's the language that everybody on the street is speaking. So what it's really like is taking a Bible that is hard to understand, like the 1611 King James Version, and translating it into modern English so that we can understand it and read it. So what Jerome was doing is he was taking a Bible that was not very well understood anymore by common people because by the year 382, most people aren't speaking Greek, Koine Greek. Not on, the, not on the streets. People are speaking Latin. And so the Catholics, this is kind of amazing because at this time, the Catholics felt it was very important to get the Bible into the common tongue so that the individual could read it and understand it for themselves. It is included, so this is the year 382, he finishes it, by the year 410. That's a long time. Can you imagine working for 30 years to get something done like that? It's a big project. He takes the Greek Septuagint and the Greek manuscripts that are in his possession. Now, I would imagine in the year 382, he had many more Greek manuscripts available to him than we have in the year 2000. Right? Because he's a whole lot closer to him. This becomes the most significant translation of the Bible, probably in the history of the world, even though we don't ever read it. And he is the one who put it where it is today. Okay, And the reason he did, if you read Jerome, is because he said the manuscripts that were available to him, although somewhat disputed because he had the others, told him this is where it should be. Now that's a pretty early date, isn't it? 382. And in 382... Jerome was looking at the available Greek manuscripts and saying, 
John 8, verses 1 to 12, the story of the woman taken in adultery should be in the Bible, and it should be right where it is now. Okay? That's how it got where it is. Now, my last statement here is this. Its inclusion here was really not very heavily debated until the last century. In the last century, it has been debated because of some other manuscripts that were found. Uh, Dr. Sadaka talked about them, and I'm not going to go into them today. So really, though, this debate is a relatively recent debate in the church. Now, I hope I'm not losing you. Now, here's my premise. This text gives evidence of age, apostol... Man, my, I'm tired today, so I'm not going to get that word out. Right, written by the apostles, historicity, and orthodoxy, while also shows itself useful in the church. It passed all the tests of canonicity. My second point here is important. The voice of Jesus speaks powerfully through it. And it has the stamp of the Spirit's power on it when it is preached. Have you ever read the Apocrypha? Any of you ever read it? Maccabees, some of them books? Yeah, do it sometime. Not for your devotions, but do it sometime. They're interesting. It's cool history. You know what's interesting? When you read those books, this is rather subjective, but you will notice it. You will end up reading them just like any other book you read. But when you read the Bible, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged seer in it sword and it pierces your soul. And the voice of the Spirit speaks through it. When you read the books of the Apocrypha, you don't find the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in the reading of them. But when you read a a passage like this, the Holy Spirit speaks through it. That is a testimony of the Spirit to its veracity. Okay? Now, that's somewhat subjective, but nevertheless, it is a universal recognition throughout time concerning this passage, telling us that it was written by the Lord. So, I want to just really quickly deal with some contextual things in the text that defends the placement of this passage right where it is. And I want to just look at two trains of thought and then make a final application. My two trains of thought that I want to develop real quick this morning is the conduct and desire of the Pharisees and the response and reply of the temple police force. These two things, I think, show us why the Holy Spirit has this story in the Bible in the first place. Now, if you will notice with me in chapter 7, in verse 32, it says this, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers, or temple police, let's just use that word, 
to arrest Jesus. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Now go over with me to verse 40. We're going to skip the passage we preached on last week in verses 37 to 39. But when the crowd hears these words that Jesus spoke on the great day of the feast, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? That he comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people about him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one put their hand on him. The officers then came back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, here's why. Because no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you been deceived too? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see. No prophet comes from Galilee. Think with me of the conduct of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are looking for a way to arrest Jesus. They are laying a trap for Jesus in order to get him. They have asked the temple police to go arrest Jesus. What did they say? No. No one ever spoke like this man. So what do they need? An occasion for his arrest. That is exactly what we see in chapter 8 and verses 1 to 12. That's why it says they were testing Jesus. They were not coming to him with a woman taken in adultery because they were really worried about justice for the woman and for the man. If they really wanted justice, they'd have brought the man. No, they were trying to lay a trap for him. Why are they trying to lay a trap for him? Because they want to arrest him. And they want to be done with him. That is the occasion of the story. That is obviously the context that establishes why this situation happened in the first place. You can also see another thing in the context that if this story didn't happen or it wasn't in your Bible would make no sense to you. Look over in chapter 8 and verse 41. These Pharisees are going to say this to him. You are doing the works your father did. Now, Jesus is saying to them, and he's going to talk to them about, you are doing the works of your father, the devil. But these people, these Pharisees, then what? They say to him, well, at least we were not born because of adultery. 
What are they saying? They're insinuating something. They're insinuating that the reason Jesus let the woman off was because his mother was an adulterer too. And he's soft on it. That's the insinuation that they are throwing at Jesus' feet in chapter 8, verse 41. That insinuation would not mean anything to us unless this story was in the Bible. That is the context. A couple other things and I'll quit. The temple police force. No one ever spoke like this man. That is quite a truth, isn't it? No one ever spoke like this man. There is no passage in the Bible that illustrates that better than what Jesus does with this woman taken into adultery. No one ever spoke like this man. When they try to lay a trap for Jesus with the woman taken in adultery, he scribbles in the stand, and then he gets up, and what does he say? Let him who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. No one ever spoke like that. He caught him. That is the context. And so that really helps us understand the interaction of Jesus and the woman. It illustrates it perfectly. So what is the point of the story that we are going to study? There are some things that are going to be important, and we're going to quit. As we look at this text next week, we're going to actually preach on the story. We are going to see that Jesus sets himself above the law as its author. And that he then uses the law to justify the woman. We are also going to see something that is really difficult. Jesus forgives the woman. And then he drops the appointed punishment of the law. What did the law demand? Death. This is going to be another moose in the yard we've got to wrestle with, or an elephant in the room. It's this. What is the relationship of forgiveness and punishment? This is a big deal. Most of us would have said this. Well, lady, I'm really sorry you sinned, and I forgive you. And I don't hold this against you, and from my heart, I don't have any animosity. I forgive you. So when we bash out your head with stones, just know we forgave you. Right? Right? That's what we say to people. You sinned, we forgive you, but here's your punishment. Is that forgiveness? Is that forgiveness? Is forgiveness an internal feeling of I don't hold a grudge and I don't hold it against you, but you still got to bear the punishment? That's a big thing to wrestle with. I'm not saying which way we should go on that in every occasion, but in Jesus' action here, his forgiveness was also a removal of the punishment that the law demanded. He did not stone her. Oh, Jesus shows grace and mercy to the woman while he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Let me close with this. This is the festival of booths. It is a big day. It is a big party in Israel. Just like what was going on at the music festival when Hamas came, right? Big party in Israel. Here's my closing application. 
special occasions are often tarnished by personal sins. It's a religious holiday. One way or another, maybe they had a little bit too much to drink. Maybe things were just getting a little bit free. And the next thing you know, a woman is sleeping with another man's... Well, how do I say that? You got the picture. Right? And it was a religious holiday. Special occasions are often tarnished by personal sin. We're coming up against the holiday season. It's a great time of year, right? Thanksgiving and Christmas. We all love to have a great party. We all love to have a good time. But guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it proceeds the issues of life. Satan loves to lay a trap. You know, Christmas is a great time for many people. But if you're a police officer, you see the other side of that. Sometimes as a pastor, I can think of many times, right around the holidays, I get a lot of calls for a lot of domestic violence. Because somebody got mad, somebody started hitting. Right? Special occasions can be tarnished by personal sin. As we look at this story, we are not going to diminish the scar and the sorrow of this woman's adultery. It was big. But Jesus forgave her. Having said that, guard your heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I pray that just something that we looked at today in regards to the veracity of this passage helps us, Lord, as we look in our Bibles and we think and we wrestle. Lord, I thank you that you promised that you would preserve your word. You did so in a story like this. Because, Lord, in this story, we truly see your heart. That you are gracious, merciful, that you are slow to anger. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.